gone down to the Connect Retreat and uh, others who are out of town for various purposes, but uh, we are glad that you are here with us tonight. If you're a guest with us tonight, if you're looking at the pew in front of you, you'll see a little card, a blue card, and we'd love for you to fill that card out, leave us some information, we'd love to get to know you better. We want to invite you to be with us at every opportunity that you may have. What we're doing on Sunday nights here at Midway is studying through the book of Judges this year. Our theme for the year has to do with the, with the Lord, God, ruling in the kingdoms of men. And as we introduced this lesson, or this series of studies, we, we talked about the fact that one of the best books in the whole Bible to study about national crisis is the book of Judges. And so tonight we want to continue that study. We're in chapter number two. Now, if you were able to be with us last year, you know that we were studying through the book of Joshua, and we did not make it all the way through the book of Joshua, but we got quite a bit, we got uh, uh, almost to the end of the book of Joshua, but as we, as we studied through the book of Joshua, one of the things that was evident to us is that the children of Israel were all pretty much gathered close together. Uh, from the time that they had left the Egyptian bondage in which they had found themselves for 400 years, and the time that they wandered in the wilderness for that 40 years, from the time that they left Egypt until the time that they went in and actually subdued the land uh, of promise, these folks were, were very close together. During the wilderness wanderings, they were to camp. They had a certain way that God had laid out the camp for them, and they were to, to camp in that way. And so they weren't scattered out. They weren't uh, uh, divided up, you know, and some here and some there, some far away and some near. They were all together. Now, as we think about that, there's something that comes to my mind. A group of people, and we're possibly talking two to three million folks here, but in, in, in the case of a group, pretty much of any size, whether it's four or five people or whatever, a group of people can influence us to do one of two things. Number one, a group of people can influence us to act badly. Have you ever heard someone say about another person where they fell in with the wrong group, they fell in with the wrong crowd. If you've watched television of, of late, you know, in, in the past couple of years, you'll know that places there are riots that go on. But a lot of that is stirred up by just a few people who agitate the crowd and they get them to do things they would not normally do when they are by themselves. Sometimes groups can get us into trouble. And you know, it's been that way for a long, long time, hasn't it? Do you remember back at the crucifixion of Jesus that as Pilate brought Jesus out before the crowd, that somebody got it started crucifying, crucifying that whole group that had been following him, that, that just a few days before who had seen Jesus as he had entered into Jerusalem, uh, they had taken their garments off and they had taken their, uh, some, some leaves and some uh, branches and things off of trees and laid it on the ground as he was entering in and they were calling him king, but now they're calling for him to be crucified. 
Groups can sometimes cause us to do things that are bad. On the other hand, sometimes groups can influence us to act better. If you get in with the right group, they influence us to do things better. That's one of the reasons that God said, I want to have a called out body. I want to have a church. We have the responsibility to help each other work through things, to help each other do better, to act better as we live our lives here on this earth. And so sometimes, you know, we're better people because we're around better people. And that's a good thing. But these people, these children of Israel, they had they had been in that group, they had been together for all those years, around a half a century at least that they had been together, except, you know, the, a new generation had arisen up, they had grown up in the group, they were all together. But now in the book of Joshua, rather the book of Judges, we find them separating. We find them leaving. Matter of fact, in Judges chapter 2, verse number 6, we find this. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. That camp, that group, was split up. Now they're going to the four winds, if you will, into the land of promise, taking the land that had been divided up for them, each person, each uh, tribe going to his particular allotted land. And now they're, they're not, they don't have that close proximity to the leader. They don't have necessarily that close proximity to one another. And so as they have split, and by the way, let me just say this right here, for the time of the wilderness wanderings, we know that they had some difficulties there, but the older generation, they sort of died out. But, but from the time that they crossed over into the promised land, they had pretty well done what was right. They had some moments. We studied about a couple of them in the book of, of Joshua. They had some moments. They've done pretty good, you know, these last few years together. Now they're separated. It's time for them to go home, to their new home, to the places where um, they had been given by God. And now they had set out on their own private endeavors, taking care of home. They had been under the direct control of God's appointed leaders, but now they're out from under their side. They're out from under their thumb, if you will. Now they only have general supervision, because the leaders simply could not be at every place all the time. And so that gave them more opportunities for some wrong choices. You know, in cases, the group can cause us to act badly. But in other cases, it can cause us to act better. And to some extent, while they were together, they acted better. But now they're separated and they make some wrong 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 choices. And so that's where we find ourselves as we study through the book of Judges. They have begun to make some very, very bad choices. Now, as we consider what we find here in the book of Judges chapter number 2, one of the first things that, that really comes to my mind that stands out is that Great leaders can have a great influence 
And, and that's seen here. In Judges chapter 2, verse 7, notice what the Bible says. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Great leaders. Joshua was a leader. Joshua himself had trained others to be leaders. Because the elders here, and so the nation as a whole, as long as Joshua, that great leader, was around, they followed God. As long as those elders, according to what we find here in Judges chapter 2, verse number 7, as long as they were around, the people did pretty well. They followed God. They listened to what he had to say. They followed their leaders. But you know what? Like all men, Joshua died. Verse 8, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. They buried him in the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Heritage, in the hill country from the north of the mountain of Gash. That great leader is not there anymore. He's gone. Gone the way of every leader. Great leader. But you know what? Not only did Joshua die, but the elders themselves died too. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Those great men who had led, even after Joshua is off of the scene, they're all dead and gone now. So what happens? Well, back to the title of our lesson tonight, there arose another generation. You see in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, I just put part of it up there for right now. Look at the rest of verse number 10. Now, if I go the right direction, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. A new generation. What they do? They began to get in trouble. They began to go astray. Keep reading there, verse number 11, what they do? They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, the Bible says, because they served idols, they served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. Going on in verse 13, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies where or whenever they marched out. The hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. Now what's this last sentence? One of the saddest in the whole Bible. They were in terrible distress. They listened to God as they listened to Joshua. They listened to God as they listened to the leaders who outlived Joshua, who were of that same generation. But when those men died, these people left God. The Bible says they abandoned God. 
and they served these other gods. And what did it get them? Terrible distress. Now that's the rest of the story of the book of Judges, okay? That's the rest of what we're going to be finding. Those terrible crises in which they find themselves and those great leaders who God raises up to help deliver them during those times. And so we'll run through a lot of those as we study through the book of Judges. But tonight, I want you to notice something specific that we're told about this new generation that arose. Notice back to verse number 10 again what the Bible says. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. There arose another generation. What about that generation that came after them? Who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. You see, that's an important statement. They did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. I want you to think about something that's probably as much said in what is not written down as there is what is written down for us here. As you think about what happened here, unlike the people before them who had seen, backing up to verse number 7 again, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel, this generation didn't know that. This generation did not know what God was capable of and what God had done for them. Now, I just want to stop right here and put a little commentary in. That's hard for me to believe. It's hard for me to imagine that somebody hadn't told the story of the crossing of the Jordan. When God caused the river, when it was at flood stage, to stop so that they could walk across on dry land. It's almost unbelievable to me to imagine that somebody hadn't talked about Jericho and how that they had marched around the city you know, we do that in Bible classes and vacation Bible schools, and sometimes we have, I know when we were at Atwood, one of the things that we had in one of our rotating uh, uh, vacation or Saturday Bible schools was we had a wall that fell down when they, when they marched around it. It fell down for them. It fell down all the way on the ground. And when the next class came along, it had been pulled back up with ropes, but, but it would fall down again. I can't imagine. We tell that story all the time. But somebody hadn't told that story to their children. Some of them had seen it happen. Some of them had marched with them. And they hadn't told those stories. But there was a generation that knew they had seen all the great work of the Lord that he had done. But this new generation arose that didn't. They did not know. Now the question is, why did that new generation not know? I mean, that's, to my mind, I've I got to ask, why did they not know? And here's where that part about as much that's not written probably tells us. Do, did you notice what is not said? It's not said that the children knew the stories 
and chose to reject them. The Bible says they did not know the stories. And they did not know God. And because of that, that leads us to the conclusion that a share of the blame, at least, lay squarely on the shoulders of the parents. How could you know all that you knew about Jericho, about crossing over the Jordan River, about all these other things that we read about and studied about in the book of Joshua and not talk about your children. Talk to them about, talk about them to your children. I get that right. How could you not do that? But the Bible explicitly says they did not know. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse number 1 and 2, well, if you go back to chapter 5 of the book of Deuteronomy, we have Moses, rather. This is even before the time that Joshua became the leader. Moses gathers the people before they are about to embark on the journey into the promised land, and they, they, he repeats before them the laws of God. If you go back to chapter 5, you'll read a second edition, if you will, the second telling of what we know as the Ten Commandments and other things that are mentioned there in Deuteronomy chapter number 5. And in chapter 6, the Bible says, beginning in verse 1, now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all the statutes and commandments which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. God promised them if you would teach them and tell them Not only would you know, but your child will know, and your grandkids will know too. Matter of fact, he tells them, that's what I want you to do. And if you drop them down here in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, going down to verse number 6, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and your gates. May I submit to you tonight, somebody stopped talking when they were sitting in their house. They stopped talking to their children about these things when they were walking on the way. They didn't live it. It wasn't posted on them as a living testimony to God. And evidently they didn't have any pictures about it on the walls in their house. God said, if you will do them, everything will be okay. He explains it's an everyday thing that you have to do. But when that son's son came along, this next generation, 
that we're reading about here in the book of Judges? The Bible says they did not know all of these magnificent things that God had done. And they didn't know God. No wonder they got in trouble. No wonder they went astray. Somebody didn't share the things that they needed to know. You know, today the responsibility still falls on parents, doesn't it? It's still our responsibility. Because just like a long time ago, within a generation or so, God can completely leave a family. How many have known, and I have known this, I've lived long enough to see this, known great gospel preachers who had grandchildren that were as ungodly as anybody ever seen. Godly elders whose grandchildren are as ungodly as anybody's ever seen on the face of the earth. Somebody messed up. Now I want to tell you, and we'll close our lesson tonight as we, when we get there, we're not, we're, not, we're not fixing to stop now, okay? But when we get there, we'll understand that it's not completely the parents' fault. Children have to have, bear some of the responsibility too. But we can't lightly pass over this fact that parents have a great responsibility to help their children and their grandchildren know God and who He is and what He does. You know what? That really requires three things from us as parents. What are the three things? Well, I've got them listed on the slide. Number one, you've got to spend time with your kids. Number two, you've got to communicate with your kids. And number three, you've got to influence we have to influence our kids. Now, if you think about those three things, those are the three basic things that we read in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. You talk about them when? When your kids are at home. When you're sitting with them, when you're walking with them, you talk about God. And so, that number one requires you to spend time. Everybody knows how busy life is today. So many things going on. So much that, that, that's out in our world to participate in. But we've got to be with our kids. Communicate with them. And influence them. Now let's look at that last one for a moment. How? How can we influence our children? Let me share three ways tonight that we can be a great influence on our children. But I think perhaps every one of us as parents and grandparents alike should practice. Number one, parents must act. Not be actors like Hollywood, but parents must act. I would submit to you that first and foremost when we're talking about parents acting is that they must keep themselves faithful to God. Doing the things that are right in the sight of God. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4 verse number 1 the Bible says, Paul writing, I therefore 
a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He didn't specifically address that to parents, even though in chapter 6 he would specifically address parents there. But he expected that the parents who were reading in chapter 6 would already have read chapter 4. And therefore, what he said in chapter 4 applies to parents just like it does every single person who is taught to walk worthy in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, to be called a Christian. He would say much the same thing in the book of Philippians chapter 1, verse number 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You see, we are to live in such a way that whether we're in the presence of people, and Paul was talking to the Philippians there, who he was separated from, but the point is this, whether we're in the presence of people or we're totally away from them, they can hear of our faithfulness. The manner of life that we're living and whether or not we are doing it in harmony with what God wrote in his book. And let me share a little secret with you if you don't already know this. Your children are watching you. They see you. They hear about you. Whether you're doing right or you're doing wrong, your children hear about you. Folks, we need to live our life so that no matter where our children are, no matter who they're with, when somebody's trying to encourage them to do wrong, they understand Mama and Daddy would never do that, and I need to live my life like Mama and Daddy. Parents have a responsibility to act in keeping themselves. But folks, listen to this. Parents also have the responsibility to act in regard to raising their children. Turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. I mentioned that a moment ago. Look at verse number 4. A passage that, that every one of us can quote, I'm sure, but I want you to look at it. The Bible says there in Ephesians chapter 6 at verse number 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath or to anger, depending upon which translation you're reading from, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now we could talk about a lot of things, the responsibility of fathers from that passage. Sometimes we do. We could talk about what our children need to be taught in the training, the discipline of the Lord. We could talk about that. But I want to focus on one part of that verse for the purpose of our lesson tonight. I want you to notice the part of that verse that says, Bring them up. It did not say, Let them grow. It said, Bring 
them up. If you were to do a, an in-depth study of the word that's used there, here's what you would find. You'd find that the word that's translated bring them up in the original language is in the present active imperative form. In other words, it means this. It means this. When, we're, when we're thinking about something from the Greek language being in the present tense, it's an ongoing process. It's something to be done over and over and over and over and over and over and over as far as you can go. Present. Active. Not passive. Active. And that last one, imperative, there's no choice. If you're going to do it right, you're going to be active. You're going to be doing. What are you doing? Bringing your children up. God says be active in raising your children. That's what he's telling us. Be active. You know, it seems like a lot of folks today have become passive parents. They want the television to babysit for them, to be the babysitter. Or they want the daycare to provide the quality time that their children need. That will never turn our children away from the devil. We are to be active parents. So many parents say, you know, I, I really don't want to influence my child to, to the religious teachings that I've always been taught. I want them to figure it out on their own. Well, would you tell me the same thing about their teeth? I don't want my children to brush their teeth because I told them to. I want them to figure that out on their own. Somebody said, maybe that's the reason God gave us two sets. They'd figure it out by the time those children, those kids' teeth fell out. And it doesn't work that way because I've seen too many people without their teeth. Would you say the same thing about bathing with your children? I don't want them to have to bathe because I told them to. I want them to figure it out. They'd be some stinky kids. Right? I don't want to teach them how to drive. I just want them to figure it out on their own. And I'm afraid a lot of parents may do that. That may not be a good example. God said that we are to be active in raising our children. Bring them up. Present, active, imperative. You see, that's what lacked back in the day of the judges. There was a group of parents who failed to act in telling their children about God and what he had done. Maybe they were just too busy in settling into the new land. Maybe it took all of their time because now they're in a new place and they've got to plant vineyards and all those kinds of things and, and get everything you know, taken care of. 
And maybe they walked into a place that had a, had a fully growing vineyard, but they still got to take care of it. They let the cares of life get in between them and teaching their children. And that same thing happens in 2017 too. You see, the responsibility of parents is to act. That's what God tells us that we're to do. Number two, the responsibility falls on parents today and parents must react. Not just act, but they must react also to things that, that are around them. You know, what do you do when, uh, when something comes on the TV screen that portrays false values, values that you as a Christian do not have? Do you just sort of pass it off or do you let it go or what do you do? I believe children need to know that what they're seeing is not believed or practiced in a Christian home. And I'm not just talking about turning to television programs that are filled with sexual scenes and all of those kinds of things. Surely we'd know those were wrong. I'm talking about going to the Discovery Channel. And listening when they talk about the ungodliness of evolution, things of that nature. When they are convinced of space aliens being as likely as God. And we could go on and on and on tonight and talking about those things, but, but we need to react to the things that our children are hearing on the television. What about this? Do you know what your children are, children are being taught in school? I understand and realize here in, in our area we have some of the, we're blessed to have some of the best teachers in the world who are God-fearing people who know God. Some are even members here at the Midway Congregation who teach, and we appreciate that so very much as you're striving to teach young folks in our area. But not everybody's like that. Not everybody, even at school, has your values. Not everybody there has the Bible's values that should be our values. It's sad to say that, but that is the truth. Do we know what our children are taught in school? You see, as those active parents, we need to know about those things and bringing them up, showing them the right way, but, but we need to know who to react as well. What do we do when, when the point is brought up about sex education and so forth? Are we willing to stand, react, not just in the face of our children when they say something or hear something, but to stand true to God's principles at school board meetings and PTA meetings and any other venue in which we could stand true to God's Word? Only willing to react in those ways. In the book of Jude, only one chapter there, down in verse number three, Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was done that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
I know you've heard this before, but Jude had the idea on his mind that he was going to write that one topic. But because of what was going on, he had to react to that and encourage them to stand up for truth. That's what we have to do sometimes as well. We have to react to the things that our children see, the things that they hear, the things that they are taught. And that brings us to the third one tonight. Parents must counteract. Act, react, and counteract. Here's what I mean by that, the importance of it. I've heard it described in this way, that children's minds are mush. Probably a better way of saying that is that they're sponges that can soak so much in that it's almost unimaginable to us who have gotten a little older that they can learn things so fast. Let me illustrate that. How many of you who are older can work your iPhone? If you can't, hand it to the three-year-old beside you. They'll fix it for you. Right? They just soaked it right into that sponge up here. But now here's the point. That child's mind, we could even say that child's soul is a void that will be filled with something. It's going to be filled with something. And I know of no better Bible verse to to go to to think about that than Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, where Jesus himself tells the story of a man who had an evil spirit who was cast out, and he goes, the evil spirit goes, and he wanders, and he can't find a suitable place, and so he comes back to the man. You know what Jesus said the evil spirit found when he came back to the man? A house that had been cleaned up, everything had been swept out. You know what Jesus said? It moved back in. And it brought seven more with it. Because now everything's cleaned out and there's plenty of room for it. It's what a child's mind, a child's very being, that's truly what it is. Go back and look at Judges chapter 2 again. Verse number 12. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, what they do? They went after other gods. From among the gods of the people who were around them. And bowed down to them, provoked the Lord to anger. When there was a void where God should have been, in the minds of these children, that next generation that grew up, when there was a void that was there, you can rest assured that it was filled. It was filled by somebody, but not the right somebody. It was filled by the neighbors that they were supposed to have driven out, but didn't. 
their children and their gods. We've got to counteract that so that our children's soul, their mind, their brain is not left empty so that a place is opened up for all of these false, ungodly things to move in. Is that not what we're taught in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7? Back there, we've already read it tonight. Talk to your children. When you're sitting with them, when you're walking with them, put all of these things in front of them so their mind can be filled with God. Somebody put it this way. Children need to be vaccinated before being sent to infectious surroundings at school and other places. Now we think about vaccinations. They go and they get the vaccinations at the doctor's office or the health department or wherever you get them at now. And, you know, you, you want to vaccinate them against measles and mumps and rubella and I don't know what all kinds of things they, they give shots for. But that's not the only vaccinations they need. We need to counteract the things that are going on around them by teaching them the right things that they know. Filling their mind with good and with right things. Parents need to counteract the wicked environment with a great deal of prayer, asking for God's help in their endeavor. As we begin to bring a lesson that y'all thought I was going to do earlier tonight, as we begin to bring it to a close, I want us to understand there is no guarantee our children will remain faithful all of their days. There's no guarantee that the next generation will come up faithful. You ever read Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6? Somebody said when I made that statement, you know, there's no guarantee. Somebody says, well, preacher, did you not read Proverbs 22, verse 6? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he grows old, he will not depart from it. I read it. But I don't know where I read it from. I read it in the book of Proverbs. What's proverb? Proverb is a short, pithy statement or saying that's in general use stating the truth or a piece of advice. Doesn't mean it's a guarantee. Watch this next one. If you go back in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Now, why do you do that? Verse 2, For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Question. Have you ever known a young person who is a good, obedient young person who died young? Many of you remember Jay Rogers, who came down, the young man from up in West Tennessee that, that we were familiar with, and, and that uh, uh, was diagnosed with cancer when he was 14 years old. Knew Jay from the time he was born. Fine, young, Christian man. It's hard when a 
16-year-old, 16-year-old, 15, 16-year-old ask you, will you preach my funeral? And that's what Jay asked me. And it was so large, and he had influenced so many people, that it was held in the high school gym. Some of you remember the devotional he gave when he came down here at our house. He died way too young. You see, that just illustrates what the Proverbs are saying here. They're statements that are generally true. Same is true with that one in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Sometimes we as parents have done everything that we possibly can. And they still go astray. And we pray for parents who are in that situation. We try to encourage folks who are in that situation. That's not what we find in the book of Judges chapter 2, though, best I can tell. Parents fell down on the job. What happens if we as parents and grandparents don't teach our children, don't train our children, what happens? Let me tell you, the very likelihood is that the same thing will happen to them that happened to those folks so long ago. That generation will come up who has forgotten God because they don't even know who He is. We have to do everything that we possibly can as parents to make sure that doesn't happen. We have to do everything that we possibly can as the body of Christ, as the church, as brothers and sisters in the Lord to make sure that doesn't happen. What a lesson that we read about and learn in Judges chapter 2. Are we having that problem in our nation today? Are we facing a crisis in our nation today? Can we go on college campuses and see all kinds of ungodliness today? Everybody has left God completely at home if they ever had Him at home when they go off. And by everybody, I don't mean every single person. Who, but the majority of folks, we've got a crisis in the United States and in the world. We're not the first nation to face it. We know one of the culprits because we talked about it tonight. The question is, what will we do about it? There may be some that we can't reach, we'll never be able to reach. But folks, as I look out here tonight, we've got a bunch of young ones sitting around. And they would be here tonight if they weren't at the retreat. We work on those, that generation, so that that generation knows. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. We would invite you to study the Word of God, to know what the Lord wants you to do in order to have His Son's blood wash your sins away. Maybe you're here and you've studied that and you know 
that you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins because you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And you're willing to repent and make the great confession. Maybe you're here tonight, and in the past that's been a part of your life, but somewhat like the folks that we're studying about tonight, you've begun to wonder away from God. If that's the case, you need to come back to Him. Or for whatever reason, we might be of assistance to you tonight. Won't you come right now?